CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Himalaya. Have you been trying to better manage your time? Become more mindful? Start your own business? As regular listeners of this show know, Himalaya is a new audio-first learning platform with over 150 courses on personal and professional development taught by instructors like author Malcolm Gladwell, divorce court judge Lynn Toller, mindfulness expert Sharon Salzberg, and many other thought leaders. What Himalaya is doing is different than a typical podcast as these are carefully curated audio courses rather than just more folks talking. Each Himalaya audio course is organized so that each lesson is a digestible 15-minute episode that focuses on the big ideas. Think of it as a packet of snack-sized lessons that'll nourish your brain. It's the best way for busy people like you and me to fit learning into our lives. And Himalaya's curated learning tracks make it easy to find courses you'll love on the topics you'll need to transform your life. Personally, I really enjoyed journalist Eric Weiner's course, The Good Fight, because it teaches how to fight constructively and creatively. His ideas are based on history, philosophy, and psychology, but he also gets practical as he gives advice on how to disagree and communicate effectively with the people we love and those we don't care for so much, really anyone with whom we might come into conflict. For a limited time, Think Like an Economist listeners can go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. That's Himalaya.com. Enter the promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. Times Square in New York City is famous for counting down to the new year when the crystal New Year's Eve ball drops to mark the moment the new year begins. But nearby, there's a clock of another sort, the national debt clock, which is counting up trillions of dollars as the national debt increases. In fact, nearly every government around the world is in debt, and the total amount of money most governments owe is typically around a year's income, which means that debt-to-GDP ratios are often around 100%. These numbers are unimaginable. Do they mean anything? They definitely mean something, but they may not mean what most people think they mean. So, Betsy, Justin, in our last episode, we talked about fiscal policy and how government spending can help get an economy out of a recession. And we've watched countries around the world spend trillions of dollars in the wake of the COVID crisis. But the end result of all that spending is that governments in dozens of countries now have even higher national debts. Right. Government debt is growing in many countries and will continue to grow because countries have made spending commitments that exceed their revenue commitments. Let me clear up some terms here. If the government spends more than it's taking in as revenue, then in that year it'll run a budget deficit. And each year's budget deficit adds to the country's government debt. A government's debt is the total amount of money the government owes. And so today's government debt is the accumulation of past budget deficits plus interest. We're going to explore government debt and budget deficits in this week's episode of Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers.
we're teaching you the tools from economics that you can apply across your life, whether it's managing your household debt or figuring out how much to be worried about our government's debt. Nestoran Tavakolifar is with us. So the budget deficit is the flow of new borrowing by the government in a year, while the total debt is the stock of how much it owes right now. So if you think about the government's finances as a bath, and I know that's how you want to think about it, then the budget deficit is the flow of new water or new debt into that bath. And therefore, the debt is the level of water in the tub. In the fiscal bathtub. Budget deficits also follow the business cycle. So if there's a recession, the budget deficit will rise as the government spends more money and takes in less tax revenue. It has to borrow money to fund this difference between what it's spending and what it's taking in. On the other hand, countries can run budget surpluses when they take in more revenue than they spend in that year. While countries sometimes run budget surpluses for a year or two, almost every country has government debt. The exceptions tend to be countries that own a lot of resources like oil. So most countries have some debt, but COVID led to big annual budget deficits that led to huge increases in debt. Wars also create budget deficits as they require a large and very sudden increase in government spending to fund the war effort. The US government's had some very large deficits in the 1940s during the Second World War. You can think of the government's mobilization against COVID as being like a war, although it's a war against a pathogen rather than a foreign country. And the mobilization to defeat COVID and support the economy caused very large budget deficits in many, many countries. When government spending can help spur growth in the future, it can really make a lot of sense for governments to borrow, particularly if interest rates are low. It's similar to how people borrow money to go to school or buy a house. It makes sense to pay for those things over time. And with student debt, most people still end up with more income, even after paying that debt, than if they hadn't gone to school at all. So all this concern about deficits from politicians, is this a political argument or an economic one? Well, it's a little bit of both. So let's think about the politics of it. Nobody wants the other guy's spending priorities to get through. So if you don't like the spending, the best argument is, hey, it's going to raise budget deficits. It's going to raise the debt. I don't want to do it. And part of it's economic, which is a higher budget deficit means the government is borrowing, which can help crowd out private businesses from being able to borrow. There's obviously a limit to how much can be done. And that's the sense in which it's a fight over what do we want to spend on and how much debt do we want to accumulate. And we hear the term balanced budget a lot, as in governments should try to get their spending and revenue to line up. Aiming for a balanced budget every year is just a bad idea because it can prolong recessions, make them deeper, make us worse off. Think about it. A recession comes along and so people's incomes fall, which means that tax revenues will fall. And also more people will need benefits, so government spending will rise. So it looks like it's facing a budget deficit, but if it has to balance its budget, all of a sudden the government's going to cut spending or raise taxes. One of the things I've been hearing about a lot lately is that government debt is rising pretty sharply in a bunch of countries. Is there a useful way to quantify how much the government owes? Economists often measure government debt relative to the size of a country's economy, which provides really useful perspective. This is the idea of a debt-to-GDP ratio, which compares how much a government has borrowed relative to its capacity to create the income it'll need to make payments. So in the United States, the debt-to-GDP ratio in 2021 was around 100%. What does this mean? It means that the U.S. has borrowed an amount equal to 100% of a single year's worth of its total production or income. 
might sound worrying that its debt exceeds its income, but realize it only exceeds this year's income. We also have lots of income in future years to help pay this off. In fact, in Japan, government debt is more than 200% of GDP. And so far, at least, that hasn't caused serious problems. People sometimes wonder if there's some magic number at which government debt creates problems. But so far, economists haven't found any clear tipping point that can lead a country to ruin. Sometimes the problem isn't the level of government debt today, but rather its trajectory and whether the government will be able to make adjustments before it gets into trouble. In the U.S., we expect debt to rise over the next few decades as our population ages. This is because the government's made a lot of promises to people about how much they're going to get in retirement and what kind of health care coverage they're going to get paid for by the government. People really don't want to see taxes rise, but it's going to be hard to fund all of these people in their retirement. The COVID rescue plans have also been really large and the government borrowed even more money to fund them. The more you borrow, the larger your interest rate bill is going to be. And if you're not at least paying the interest on your debts, then your debt will continue to grow just because of rising interest costs. And should people be worried about rising government debt in the future? I'll give you an economist answer, which is on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. So let's talk about some of the key ideas that ought to inform your answer. There's a saying in economics that a government budget is not like a family budget. And it's true. They're really different. So if you use analogies to your family budget, you'll often come to faulty conclusions. For instance, while you have to pay off all your debts, the government debts don't have to be paid off just by the current group of citizens. The government can pay off its debt really slowly over many decades and over many generations. But I've seen some really scary statistics, though. For example, in the US, the government owed about $21 trillion in 2020, which in a country of $330 million, well, that breaks down to about $60,000 per person. Yeah, Nez, that sounds like a lot, but realize the government actually will probably spend about a million dollars on you over the course of your lifetime. So $60,000 in the context of that million just means the government's cutting back a little bit on what it would spend on you. Future generations can help too. If we share the burden with a future 330 million people, well, right there, I've just halved each person's share of the national debt. You know, and the government doesn't really need to pay its debts off fully to be sustainable. We need to think about debt as being sustainable if it's stable relative to the size of the economy. So you don't need to pay off that 60000 per person. You just need to make enough payments that it doesn't rise faster than our ability to pay. And so this is the idea that we want the debt-to-GDP ratio to be stable. Yes. So if the US debt is equal to 100% of this year's GDP, and if that ratio stays stable so that next year it's equal to 100% of next year's GDP, and the year after it's still equal to 100% of that year's GDP, and so on, then this seems pretty sustainable. This would be a pattern that would seem to say, this is a government that can keep up with its payments. This also suggests some different economic strategies. If you want to keep your debt-to-GDP ratio from rising, one way is to make sufficient payments on your debt. Another way is for the economy to grow faster. Betsy's right, and she's talking about one of the key reasons why economists aren't overly concerned with government debt at the moment. They compare two numbers. The first is the real interest rate, which is the rate that the debt would grow at if we'd made no repayments. The second is the economic growth rate, which is the rate at which our ability to repay the debt is rising. If the real interest rate is lower than the economic growth rate and the government stops running deficits, then our debt will naturally continue to rise more slowly than GDP. And hence the debt to GDP ratio will fall. Economists love to talk in code, so sometimes they'll say that debt isn't a problem with R less than G. 
By R, they mean the real interest rate, and G means the economic growth rate. The idea is that if we have a lot of economic growth, then our ability to repay the debt will grow faster than we're accumulating debt. That's why it makes sense to ask what the government is spending on and why it's spending. Is it spending on an investment, like in people or infrastructure or research into new ideas? If so, this kind of spending is more likely to be easy to pay back because it's going to contribute to economic growth. And are there other ways where government budgets are different from family budgets? You bet. The government has options that you don't. If you fall into debt, Naz, it can impact your ability to get credit in the future, and it can be tough to quickly raise enough cash to get out of that debt. It's easier for a government to raise revenue. It can just raise taxes, and even raising taxes by just a few percentage points can be enough to raise billions of dollars of revenue and help stabilize the debt to GDP ratio. The government has one more option that people don't, and that's that it can just print money to repay their debts. However, while this seems like a solution, it can be really costly because it can lead to inflation, and also even cases of hyperinflation. The classic example is hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s, and Venezuela's current crisis is a more recent example of a government printing money to pay its debt and causing hyperinflation. Inflation is a tricky way for a government to officially repay its debt, but do so in a way that it can afford. And the people it borrows from hate. After inflation, the government can often repay the full amount of the debt it owes, say in dollars, but it can repay only because it's paying in dollars that are worth a lot less. I definitely do not recommend the strategy of inflating away the debt. Lenders understand when governments do this to them, and it makes them reluctant to lend to those governments again in the future, or it lends to them at really high interest rates. There's another reason to well, I don't want to say not worry, but perhaps worry somewhat less about government debt, and that's because it's money we owe ourselves. What I mean by this is that most of the money the U.S. government has borrowed has actually been linked to it by Americans, and so it's money that one group of Americans, that is the government, owes to another group of Americans. You've given us some reasons not to be so concerned about debt, but you still said that you were somewhat concerned. Now, why is that? An important problem is that government borrowing can push up interest rates. Basically, the government's borrowing money that might otherwise be used to fund new businesses starting up or existing businesses investing in new machinery or research and development. In this case, higher debt can come at the expense of somewhat slower economic growth. Higher government debt also makes it harder for governments to borrow if they suddenly need funds. Say, if there's a national emergency, like a, a natural disaster, a pandemic, or or another recession. Another problem is that higher debt may lead lenders to worry that they might not get paid back, so they might demand higher interest rates. Now, here's the problem: higher interest rates may actually make it harder for governments to pay it back because it's going to increase the overall interest payments the government has to pay each year, which makes the debt problem even worse. It's even worse than that. It can create what we call a crisis of confidence. The problem is that the perception that government debt is unsustainably high. Can lead lenders to charge really high interest rates, and those really high interest rates now mean the government really can't meet its repayments. This sort of self-fulfilling prophecy was a huge problem for Greece during the global financial crisis. As it became clear that Greece's debt was higher than they understood, investors became concerned that Greece wouldn't be able to repay its debts. That fear pushed the interest rate from five percent up to twenty-five percent. At that rate, it was really impossible for Greece to meet its annual interest payments. Ultimately, the European Union and the International Monetary Fund 
had to step in with emergency loans and a recovery program. And years later, the Greek economy is still trying to get back on its feet. The final reason to be concerned about government debt is high debt can lead to a debt crisis. Government doesn't just borrow money on a 30-year fixed term that they have to repay in the future. Rather, it's constantly got debts coming due, some of which it pays by getting new loans, which is called rolling over the debt. But if lenders decide they don't want to lend to your government, then you've got a crisis. You've got loans to repay, but no way of borrowing to do it. Your only choice is to abruptly raise taxes and cut spending. This is what happened during the Latin American debt crisis in the 1980s, and the sharp cut in government spending quickly caused a recession. So there's a lot to consider here. I'm still trying to figure out where I stand on rising government debt. A lot of us are really used to thinking about our own personal spending and budgeting and debts. But how can we start to think about the government's debt? Thinking about your own debt is probably the wrong starting point. That comes with all sorts of anxieties built in, and it's really not a good analogy. Naz, as an individual, you usually can't have your grandchildren pay off your debts, whereas future generations can help make payments on the national debt. In fact, the federal government never needs to pay off its debt. The thing is, governments are infinitely lived, and that means the debt can be infinitely lived. Also, you can't inflate away your personal debt. A government can inflate away its debt, even though we've said it's not a good idea. And in addition, the government can just raise taxes. It doesn't have to go and get a second job if it wants to start to make payments on its loans. You know, politicians often draw analogies between the national debt and household budgets, even though we've explained why that's flawed. Former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher is famous for having said that the government should do what any good housewife would do if money were tight. Look at their accounts and see what's wrong. The reality, though, is that often when politicians say they're concerned about debt, they're more concerned about spending. They might want less spending, but they'll point to the debt because they think that's a more persuasive argument. That's why where you fall on this debate as to whether we should worry about government debt really depends on your values. A lot of countries that are racking up debt right now, they're racking up that debt-making investments that are also going to benefit future generations. These bigger debts could also hinder future generations if the government can't borrow because of unsustainable debt. So all of this is about the relationship between today's generations and future generations. You know, if you look around today, you can see the kinds of benefits we have because of the investments that previous generations made. But we also have some debt to pay because of the spending that previous generations did. So it's a difficult trade-off and a hard values question. What balance of debt and infrastructure, you know, things like roads and technology, do you think we should leave for the next generation? When I talk to young people today, you know, they have some concerns about the debt, but they also have a lot of concerns about climate change and about research into new ideas, into development. And I think these are real questions about where your values are. Should we be spending more to address climate change, to address new ideas, to improve technology? Or should we be worried about the debt? Betsy, Justin, thanks. These are some really important topics for us all to grapple with and to figure out because they're going to be affecting us for the years to come. And they're not just going to be affecting you and I, Naz. 
They're going to be affecting my kids as well because they're going to inherit either the wonderful infrastructure or the terrible debts that we decide to incur. But I do think it's important for people to realize that reasonable people can disagree here. It's up to you to decide whether the government spending is worth the debt that's being accumulated and whether it makes sense for future generations that they'll benefit from the spending or whether they're going to be burdened by the debt. Thanks for listening. There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free. Himalaya.com econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time to think like an economist. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.